We're continuing through our short summer series out of the book of Psalms. And uh, next, and we have this week Psalm number 45 for our text just today. Psalm number 45 for our text today. <clears throat> I'm going to do what the, this passage does. Only I'm going to use a different person. I'm going to try to describe to you a person that I used to know and see if I can get you to understand what he was like. I'll try to tell you enough about him so you get the idea. Because it takes a few things if you're explaining a person and what they were like. When I lived on my Uncle Ed's farm, we had a farmhand. We called him Big Carl. I'm going to explain to you about Big Carl. He was a big fella, maybe six, three, or four, and he was big and broad shoulders with a 50-inch waist. Uh, He wasn't fat. He was just a big, big fella, but that's not why we called him Big Carl. He was big in lots of ways. His voice was big, really big, a lot bigger than mine. He yelled an awful lot. You could hear him from miles away yelling. Remember him yelling way down the pasture. We could hear him. But what he liked best was stand right next to you and yell in your ear. That's what he liked to do. And you felt the sound waves as he was yelling at you. Almost hurt your ears. And his appetite was also big. Matter of fact, he was famous for his appetite. Uncle Ed always said, don't pass the food to Big Carl until last. Make sure you don't do it. Because uh, whatever was in the bowl, he just turned it upside down, emptied it on his plate. And Uncle Ed would say, what if somebody wants seconds? He'd say, I don't want seconds. (laughs) Of course, he ate everything on the table. He had a coffee cup so big you could put your fist in it. And Uncle Ed would say, you're drinking all the coffee. He'd say, I only drink one cup. <laughs> I remember he was eating spaghetti once, and he stopped. And he said with that voice of his, can I get another fork? And so they gave him another fork, and he was eating with two-fisted. He's a two-fisted eater, eating spaghetti with a fork in each hand. Now, he wasn't a violent man. Uncle Ed liked him because he never hit a cow. But when he got frustrated, he did something else. He bit his hand, ah, hard too. And his hand was all calloused all around it because he bit himself so much. I remember he got stuck with a tractor down the field once. And we stood and we looked down there. He was kicking the tires hard as he could, screaming at the top of his lungs and waving his hand. Because that's what he did. <laughs> He often spoke in limerick. Now, you may not know what limerick is. Limericks are just little rhymes that don't make a lot of sense. It's called a limerick. When I was a kid, I had a book of limericks. Just little rhymes that have no meaning. There once was a man in the garden who always begged everyone's pardon. When they asked him what for, he replied, You're a bore, and I trust you'll get out of my garden. That's a limerick. Big Carl talked all the time in limericks. He figured out a little rhyme, and he used them all the time. We had another old fellow that worked for us. He liked to make up little limericks about him. He always spoke in limericks. One of the more exciting times with Big Carl, we used to watch Laugh-In. Some of you remember the show Laugh-In. 
Well, he would scream and yell at the TV and shake his fist, stand up and holler at the TV. He was much more entertaining than the TV. And I often wondered how he ever got to be such a character, this fella, Big Carl. Well, one day he asked if he could go home and see his mother. And so Uncle Ed and I got in the car. We took him home. We went down a side road. Then we went down a back road. Then we turned actually into a cow pasture. Went through a fence into the cow pasture and drove through the cow pasture till we came to a little old house in the cow pasture. As we were pulling up, we saw a fellow come out the door. He was so tall, he had to duck to get out of the door. And he came and he stood out, big, huge, tall, skinny fella. Big Carl started screaming. He said, look, there's Tiny. <laughs> that was his brother. And then a woman came out of the door. And Uncle Ed said it'd be easier to jump over her than go around her. And to this day, I remember that lady not for how big she was, but the clothes she had on. She had a man's white t-shirt on, and she had a brown leather skirt. Uh, I don't know where that ever came from. Uh, a big Carl yelled, Mama, Mama, Mama. So he got out, and there was what a trio it was. Big Carl and Tiny and Mama. And so we kind of knew why Big Carl was like he was when we got there and saw his family. There's lots of stories I could tell about Big Carl, but I've told you enough so you get the idea what this fellow was like. And you have a picture in your mind that I've painted there helping you to understand and as I describe a person that I knew. In our psalm today, David is describing something, uh, someone, and he's trying to tell us enough so we can get to know him too. And so he's writing a song about this person. These are songs that David wrote, and Psalm 45 was one of those songs. So we begin with the introduction to the chief musician on Shoshanim for the sons of Korah, Maskil, a song of love. It's such a good song, he wants only trained musicians to perform it. Maskil means a song to instruct us. He's trying to teach us something. And then he gives it a title. It's called A Song of Love. That is, it's about the many reasons for loving this person that he's about to describe to us. So he calls it a song of love. So let's begin with verse 1. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is a pen of a ready writer. He's writing about a king, he says. He's trying to describe how he feels about the king. And he says his heart is indicting him or it's pushing him. It's forcing him. And he says then, I'm not the author I'm just a pen in somebody's hand. 
and it's bubbling up out of me, and so I have to write it the best way I can, and for him, it was to write it in a song. That was his best way. Now, who is this king he's writing about? Verse 2, thou art fairer than the children of men. So he's not a man, this king. He's far better than any man, so obviously he's talking about the person that we know as Jesus. King Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, the God-man. I wish I knew how David got to know the things he's about to describe. Did he have a dream about Jesus? Or maybe several dreams? Or did he have a vision like other men did in the Bible? Some men said, all of a sudden I found myself in heaven. I don't know how I got there. I don't even know if I was in my body. Maybe David had a vision. I don't know what it was. Or maybe David was singing and praying and suddenly God drew very near to him. So near that you could almost smell him. Because he seems to have used all his senses, his hearing and his eyes and even his nose in describing and seeing who this is. Uh, I wish I knew how he got to know these things. But he's going to tell us about this king. His first impression is this. Verse 2. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured unto thy lips. Therefore God has blessed thee forever. Grace, he said, is poured unto the lips of this king. You should hear him speak. Oh, the things he says. And I got to tell you, I wholeheartedly agree with David. One of the most impressive things about Jesus is what he said. When Jesus was on earth, once they sent policemen to arrest him. And when the policemen went back without him, they were asked, where is he? You're supposed to arrest him. Take him into custody. And the policemen said, well, we couldn't. They said, why not? Because nobody ever spoke like that before. They were right. Nobody ever said things like Jesus. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. You can't get to God unless you go through me. Buddha never said that. And Jesus said, I am the bread of life. Mohammed never said that. Jesus said, if any man thirst, let him come to me and drink. Confucius never said that. Jesus said, come to me and I will give you rest. Nobody ever said anything like that before or since. My friends, I have spent the larger part of my life telling people what Jesus said and trying to explain it. For almost 45 years, I've been repeating what Jesus said, and his words are just as fascinating to me today as they were 45 years ago, maybe even more fascinating. He was the best preacher and the best teacher that ever lived. And David says, grace is poured unto his lips and comes out of his mouth. That's a very good description of Jesus. Let's go on, verse 3. Gird thy sword on thy thigh, O most mighty, and thy glory and thy majesty. 
and in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. Thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Now David sees him differently. Maybe another dream. He sees him riding on a horse with weapons as if he's going to war. But right in the middle of that explanation, David throws in a word that just doesn't belong there. It changes the whole meaning. It doesn't fit. When a king goes to war, he grabs his weapons and he rides into battle. You just never describe that action with the word meekness. (laughs) Why, for sure, it's courage when you go to war and power and determination, yes, and strength. But it just is never, it's just not meekness when you go to war. But wait a minute. Think about it. Do you remember the time that Jesus rode a horse? He did it only once. He rode into Jerusalem for the final time. Last time he entered into Jerusalem, people shouted, Hosanna, Hosanna, Hosanna to the son of David. But when they came to arrest him, he quietly submitted. When they falsely accused him, he answered not a word. And when they abused him and mocked him and struck him with their fists, he patiently took it all. They whipped him and placed a crown of thorns on his head and they nailed him to a cross and he prayed for them. And he took it all in meekness. Of course, three days later, he arose from the grave, that mighty conqueror that David describes. The Bible says he destroyed principalities and powers and made a show of it openly, triumphing over them in his cross. And as David says, his arrows were sharp and straight to the heart. As he rode away, their bodies were left behind. With meekness, he defeated all the powers of darkness. That's a good description of Jesus Christ. So let's read on, verse 6. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hateth wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, has anointed thee with the oil of gladness above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloe and cassia out of the ivory palaces whereby they have made thee glad. Because he defeated his enemies on the cross, And he arose from the grave a conquering hero. God, it says, give him a name above every name. And he claims the throne. And unlike people who rule in confusion and who rule in poor judgment and who rule with bad decisions, Jesus makes perfect decisions so God anoints him he says to be king forever and ever and in the ivory palaces of heaven God says to him sit down at my right hand and reign until thine enemies become thy footstool and he pours an anointing oil over Jesus and anoints him to be the king of all the world and David says I could smell it The myrrh and the cassia 
and the aloes. I could smell sweet fragrances of anointing oil that was used to anoint prophets and priests and kings. You see, David was once anointed by Samuel the prophet to be king over Israel. And he recognized those sweet fragrances. And he writes down, I can smell it. I can smell the aloe and the myrrh and the cassia. And oh yes, it's much sweeter than my anointing was. God has given his blessing to Jesus to rule and be the judge over all the earth. My friends, he is a great king. But suddenly there's a strange twist in the storyline as he describes King Jesus to us. Verse 9. King's daughters were among thy honorable women. Upon thy right hand did stand the queen in gold of Ophir. Hearken, O daughter, and consider and climb thine ear. Forget also thine own people and thy father's house. So shall the king greatly desire thy beauty, for he is thy Lord, and worship thou him. Suddenly David starts talking about a queen. And he uses a very familiar phrase. One that you've heard a thousand times, maybe. It is, leave your father's house, he says. Those are the words that God used to define marriage when God told us what marriage was. He said, a man shall leave his mother, and a woman shall leave her home. So what he's telling us is the king is going to get married. (laughs) Why do people get married? Well, I know why I did. Because I was madly in love. That's why. Where is she? Right here. Right here. There she is. I took that lady to be my wife 47 years ago. And one thing that was true when I was doing that, I wanted to be with her. I remember one day, it was a snowy night, and I said to my mother, I want to go pick her up. She said, you can't go tonight, it's too bad weather. And then I was kind of disappointed, and she said, well, you'll have to put up with us and not her. And I said, I didn't say anything because I knew not to. But I thought inside, I'd rather be with her than my mother. See? Now, Eric, you say, do you mean Jesus is madly in love? You bet I do. That's exactly what I mean. So who's the lucky bride? You are. I am. And everyone who believes in Jesus and takes him to be their savior, and as, as, as we sang, is washed in the blood of the lamb. The church is his bride. And all through the Bible, the words marriage and bride and bridegroom are used to describe how Jesus feels about the church. My friends, I wish I could make you understand that when we gather together in Jesus' name, a special love is poured out of the heart of Jesus, and it comes down 
down to us who are gathered and flows over us. He deeply loves the church. I wish I could make you understand these gatherings are delightful to Jesus. Going to church is not something you just do on Sunday because you're supposed to. It is not just a social gathering. It is not just a religious activity. Do not give in to the current attitude that church is non-essential. Get it straight in your mind. Going to church, going to church is a love affair with Jesus Christ. We come here to express our love and to respond to Him. That's how He views it. Do you? Do you understand? If you would, you'd never miss a Sunday. Verse 12. The daughter of Tyre shall be there with a gift. Even the rich among the people shall entreat thy favor. King's daughter is all glorious within. Her clothing is of wrought gold. She shall be brought to the king in raiment of needlework. The virgins, her companions that follow her, shall be brought unto thee. With gladness and rejoicing shall they be brought. They shall enter into the king's palace. This beautiful bride called the church is so attractive. That people come from all around to see it, to celebrate the marriage. And it says a wonderful thing here about the bride. She is beautiful on the inside. Now, I've known some ladies who are beautiful on the outside, but not so beautiful on the inside. huh? They may be stunning to look at. But what's on the inside makes them very unattractive. The church is supposed to be beautiful on the inside where it really counts. We're supposed to be attractive to others. And if so, it says, if it grows into a loving, faithful bride... It will be attractive to others and they'll come and join us. Therefore, we say, what is the mission of the church? Verse 16. Instead of thy fathers shall be thy children whom thou makest, mayest make princes in all the earth. I will make thy name to be remembered in all generations. Therefore shall the people praise thee forever and ever. To multiply is the mission of the church. To grow, to have children. It's not about our ancient fathers and the bloodlines that we came in. It's about our future and our family and our growing children. Verse 17, David sings, I will make your name to be remembered in all generations. And sure enough, here we are and he shall be 3,000 years later and we still sing David's song. Grace is poured unto thy lips. A king who rides in meekness, anointed to reign and takes a bride and loves her to death. Literally loves her to death. A very good description, David. A very good description indeed. So I ask you, Is that how you describe him? I hope so. I hope you do. He's your king. He's your teacher. He's your savior. He's your bridegroom. May you respond to his tender advances, for he is fairer than all the children of men. That's Jesus. Well described by David in this song. God bless you as you serve your king. Shall we pray? Dear Heavenly Father.
Thank you for the explanation that guides us to understand who Jesus is. Thank you that you told David until he couldn't take it anymore and he had to write it down. We're grateful in our hearts that we have the opportunity to be loved by this King. And that as we gather here in his name, his love comes down around us and lets you know that you are chosen of him. You are the blessed ones that he loves. Thank you that we can gather in his name inside or out or under the trees, wherever we might be. And we can never be cut off from him who loved us and gave himself for us. We thank you for that. We ask that your blessing will rest on this congregation because they have been here on this day. We believe in you with all our heart and we thank you for what you've done. Bless these people, we pray, because they've been here on this day. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. In closing, I'd like you to sing a song with us. It's on your bottom of your bulletins called Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. Ask the choir to come on down and help us sing. Stand together with us. We're going to sing, Turn Your Eyes Upon Jesus. closing word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, as we turn our eyes on you, see who you are. We're glad to have the things of this world dim and fade away, that we might look at you more closely, that we might love you more dearly. So bless us, Lord, because we have gathered in your name. ask you to be with these people today and be kind and good to each one. Let them know they have done a good thing when they have gathered here with us today. 
We ask your blessing on all those who are listening to the sound of our voice, too, that they may also know that God is good and precious. They can trust him with all our hearts. We thank you that we know you and that you're good to us and that we have the opportunity to serve you down here. And we look forward to the day when we go to heaven. We look forward to the day when we hear the Jordan River roll and know that we are with God forever. Bless us, we ask, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 Thank you for being here today.